If you've experienced a DNA surprise, you know that your emotions can range from shock to denial to grief to anger to confusion to joy and around again. And sometimes it's hard to find people who understand this unique experience. Sometimes we feel a little stuck as we navigate this journey. That's why we created the DNA Surprise Retreat. At the DNA Surprise Retreat, you'll enjoy six expert-led sessions to help you process your DNA surprise. You'll eat delicious catered meals, and most importantly, you'll build beautiful friendships with people who understand you, all in a stunning private ranch facility in the Arizona desert. If you've had shocking DNA test results, know that you're not alone. This retreat is for you. Join us September 19th through the 22nd, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Registration is open now. Reserve your space at dnasurpriseretreat.com. I'll see you there. My mother, again, because she think, I think she thought she was the funniest person in the world that nobody got her humor. And there are lots of things that she used to say to us that I didn't get until I was older. And one of the things she commonly said when I would ask for something, and, and you know, it's funny, my sister does not remember this. So I don't know if it was something she said to my sister, but she definitely said it to me. And it was, um, she would say, oh, you know, just ask your real parents when they come back from Europe. I'm just watching you. Um, mm. Or sometimes she would say, don't ask me, I just work here. Um, and then sometimes she would like, you know, stroke my, you know, white blonde hair and say, oh, you look just like your father. And I'd be like, mom, dad has red hair. And she would say, oh, not him, your real father. Like, oh. like a joke. I mean, she wasn't saying it for me to believe it, yeah. but it was just a, you know, it's the humor in my family anyway. Imagine spitting into a tube, sending off your DNA, and unknowingly turning your life upside down. For me and thousands of others, this is our reality. I'm your host, Alexis Auerselt. In July of 2021, I discovered that I am an NPE, someone who has experienced a non-paternal event. In other words, my biological father isn't who I thought he was. This podcast shares the journeys of people who were shocked by a DNA discovery, mostly through modern DNA testing. We're telling the stories of NPEs, adoptees, and donor-conceived people and their families. This is DNA Surprises. Not every DNA surprise is filled with trauma and upset. In this week's episode, Guy joins me for a delightful conversation about his NPE discovery. He discusses why he always felt like he didn't fit in and the other reasons he thought explained his outsider status in the family. He shares why he feels vindicated and relieved to learn that he is an NPE and how he's tackling his case like a detective. Thank you for sharing your story. Guy. Uh, my name is Guy, and I'm 55, and I am from Indianapolis. Well, uh, my DNA surprise story in a nutshell was that I discovered at this late age uh, that my the father who raised me was not my biological father. 
He is the biological father of my older brother and sister, but not me. My parents were together for 50 years before my mother passed away, and then he died three years later. There was never any sus suspicion of, that there could be other paternity other than me growing up feeling like an outsider. I always felt like, especially my father's family, I just, I didn't look like any of them. They're all like redheads and very pale skinned. And um, I'm blonde with a kind of dark skin for blonde. But the thing is, you know, I look almost exactly like my mom. I mean, it's mm -hmm. creepy. I mean, I, like the, you look at the photographs and she was once walking through my dorm hallway and somebody was like, oh my God, you must be Guy's mother. Um, uh, so I guess, you know, although I felt alienated, I felt like I wasn't part of the group. I had no evidence to go on, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but even growing up, when we would go to my father's mother's house, the only photograph she had of our family was taken before I was born. Mm. And she never had a different photograph put up. There was never a photograph of me at that house. Did you ever ask about that? I think I really just internalized it as a kid. I don't remember ever telling anybody about it. And I remember mentioning to my sister just recently under, you know, because of all this. And she said, oh, yeah, you're right. That's true. Because um, there were pictures of her and my brother. Here's, they looked like members of that family. And I didn't. And I always felt that they just treated me. They weren't crazy about my mom um, because my dad is from a very tiny town and came to Indianapolis to go to school. And my mother met him on a blind date. Unbeknownst to him and all of us until many years later, she was secretly putting away money to move away to California with some girlfriends. But a, a woman she worked with said, come and meet my, my boyfriend's roommate. We're going on a double date. It'll be all fun. It won't be any big deal. And mom said, you know, he made her laugh and that they uh, got together and that changed her plans. We found out later that she must have gotten pregnant really quick in their relationship. And that sort of changed everybody's plans. Okay. And so they got married only, I'm going to say, probably five months, six months after they met. Mm. Um, and I've heard my mother say things. She never really talked about that. Um, I pieced that together as a kid, sitting with my grandmother, her mother, and said, wait a minute, they got married in this year, but my, you know, Mindy wasn't born until this year. And my grandmother was like, yes, her mother was pregnant when she got married. Because that's how my grandmother was. She was very straightforward. She always treated me, we had a great chemistry between the two of us. And she always said that, you know, that I just seemed like a friend of hers, even as a kid, you know? And so she always told me, this truth about stuff, which makes me think she had no idea about this. My mother's mother, my dad's family, again, were on, well, they were unkind in many ways, but his mother was not warm. Let me put it that way. Okay. Whereas my mother's mother, uh, I mean, was my salvation. I mean, she really was the person who made it possible for me to be the person I am today mm. because she just gave me so much support and so much unconditional love and so much encouragement about everything I was interested in. Um, and also she spoke to me honestly, which is again, why I think she didn't, she didn't know about this because she told me a lot of other stuff about people in the family. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, they got married, they lived, she moved back with him. This would have been like 1959. They moved up back where he was from and they lived there for, and my, where my sister was born. And then four years later, so my brother was born. And I knew from family stories, my mother was miserable. 
from her telling and her mother's telling and other family members, she felt very much not welcomed there. Mm. And that they, they treated, I think they had a kind of like this fancy city woman had come down and stolen one of their, you know, homeboys, their, you know, hometown boys. And, you know, and my mother was very beautiful and, you know, this honey blonde, Marilyn Monroe kind of figure, because she was still trying to be very feminine back then. And she was an intellectual. I mean, that's really the only way to put it. She was a, a deep reader. I think that she felt out of place and she didn't really try to fit in, honestly. Mm. She always had sort of a look on her face that she knew she was the smartest person in the room. And some people gravitated toward that because they were like, oh, thank God. But other people found it off-putting. So that brings us to like 1964, my brother is born. My brother is the spit and image, as they say, of my father. My uh, raised my father, I think is what people say. Um, or birth certificate father. I mean, really creepy. Again, like we don't waste faces in my family. Uh-huh. Um, we just keep recycling them. In the family stories, I was born and uh, like maybe four months later, my dad came home from work. And my mother was packing up the station wagon and she said, I'm taking the cats and the kids in that order back to Indianapolis and you can come with us if you want. Mm. And I told that story in front of her once years and years later. And she said, what she laughed and said, well, it wasn't quite that dramatic. It didn't happen exactly like that. But, you know, the feeling was there. That's, that's sort of what it felt like. But years later that I heard a story from my, her mother, she'd come up to help my mom pack as they were packing up the car some neighbor ladies came over to, you know, sort of say, oh, well, you know, we're sorry. And my mother apparently was like, you know, you gossipy old biddies. That's not the word she used. Um, (laughs) You know, get, you know, get your ass back over and stay out of everybody's business. And my grandmother was shocked because that's not how my mother would, you know, she was raised as a Southern lady with manners. Um, And my mom was like, they know what, you know, they know what they're doing. They're just over here to, you know, gossip and, um, and I'm not having it. I'm getting out of this town. Mm. So she was not happy there. Fast forward to them moving to Indianapolis in the big city. And my brother and sister never stopped talking about the idyllic life they had led in this small town. And growing up, it really did feel like they were kids who were raised in the country versus me who grew up in the city. Mm. Now, Indianapolis is not a you know huge, sophisticated city, but compared to the rest of Indiana, it sure is. How much older are your older siblings than you? My sister is uh, seven years older and my brother is three years older. Okay. So by the time I came around, they had been married about seven years. And mom had been living in this small town for about seven years. And I think it was hard for them. Even my brother, who was only, he would have been three when they moved. um, I think that that transition was tough for them Mm -hmm. because, you know, it was just a whole new house. And I have no memory of that small town i have no memory of until we moved into this house you know and but growing up again i always felt like an outsider and my mother didn't help things by dyeing her hair like a dark red throughout the you know my whole childhood so even in our family photos it's like these three these four dark-haired people and you know red red two redheads and and you know there's my huge enormous blonde head um (laughs) that just looks like i i mean you know i also had like my head was adult size as a child and so like (laughs) I'm like no matter where my head is taking up the room and then all the photographs of my cousins from my dad's side you know I again I look like a neighbor kid who's just dropped in Mm. because I I just don't fit in at all 
So, I mean, I grew up very much not part of this family's culture, but very much embraced by my mother's family because I looked like her and they were very fond of her. And also very much encouraged by my grandmother to be uh, an original person, to be my own, follow my own drumbeat. And um, she liked that about me. Um, because I think she had been sort of an avant, what she called it, avant-garde person, uh-huh. you know, as a teen in the 30s. And so, you know, look, I was a teen in the 80s and, you know, I looked like a blonde uh, boy George. Oh, that's amazing. So look him up if you, no, you're young to know who he was. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and my gender variance was always there. I mean, I played with dolls from, I have no memory of not playing with dolls. And my mother, because she was a feminist, encouraged it and allowed it and you know defended me from uh family members who would try to shame me for it and my grandmother i think that came from my grandmother because i think my grandmother was very much let him be who he is you know um and i think also i'll be honest with you my mother enjoyed the cachet Mm. of having a child who wasn't like the rest of her children, you know, the rest of the kids, that he was clearly artistic. And, you know, and I think that she dined out on that. You know what I mean? I think she enjoyed the, um, how that made her special as a mom, Mm -hmm. you know, it reflected on her. Yeah. Up to a point. Okay. I think after a certain age, it became, she joined in with the rest of the grownups who feared what that was a signal of, Mm. you know, that what that would foretell. And um, I think it began to make her uncomfortable because I think she started with her own gender for so long that she did not feel feminine and she hated being tiny and dainty and being put in this little box because of being blonde and being, you know, barely five feet tall and this like treated like a doll. Yeah. And so she really rebelled against that during my childhood. Um, I see her in pictures with my brother and sister and she's still you know, makeup and beautiful clothing. And then the pictures with me, you know, she's got this butch haircut and these pantsuits. And uh, one of the stories that my mother used to tell is about taking me to something at my school and one of the kids saying, excuse me, sir, whose daddy are you? Yeah. And I think, again, she sort of enjoyed that. How did your father treat you and her? I'll tell you this. I had friends in high school who thought my father was deaf because they would come over and he would never say a word or he would pick us up someplace and take us someplace and he never said a word. And I never spoke to him and he never spoke to me. Mm. And, and another friend kind of was worried that maybe my father was dead because I never talked about it. And that's not an inaccurate way to place it because he never spoke. He was a very quiet person, um, very buttoned up. I mean, in hindsight, I see that both of them suffered from depression Yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of untreated stuff that, I think their lives would have been a lot happier, frankly. They were not happy people. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes they were fun people. They weren't happy. Yeah. So he didn't get in my way. Okay. And I think that was because my mother wouldn't let him and my grandmother wouldn't let him. Mm-hmm. But he never, I mean, every time I would leave the house, he would make the same joke, going to a costume party. <laughs> um, but, but, and you know, that's passive aggressive and yeah. microaggression. Yes. But he also didn't say, get back in there and take that makeup off. Right. Okay. But I did grow up with this feeling of feeling like an outsider, which at the time growing up, I thought was really about being gay. You know, I thought it was that from a very young age, I had a secret. And until puberty hit, the secret was that I played with dolls. And that was something shameful that people couldn't know outside of the family. Mm. 
And then when I, you know, hit puberty, that turned into, oh, this is something else. My outsider status is something else within this family. And being an outsider in a group, you have a view of the family that's different than the insiders do. Yeah. Um, any any minority group uh, or you know historically disenfranchised group has that experience. Although women are not minorities, they still are disenfranchised from this society, and so they have a different perspective of it than men do. Um, and men don't even get that that can be there can be a different way of seeing world the world right. you know, often. Right. Um, my perspective is skewed because. Although I don't consider myself non-binary, um, we were when I was growing up. I'm so old now that we say we said androgynous. Yeah, back then, yeah. W- which meant being both male and taking the best of both, mm-hmm. and that's how I sort of felt. You know, once I kind of integrated my personality, it was like, oh, you know, I'm feminine and masculine, um, and that's fine with me. Yeah. Um, it's not that simple, of course, but uh, so that. That, that just sort of made sense to me that, you know, those are the reasons I'm not part of this family mm-hmm. and that the grownups who have uh, alienated, felt alienated from me or couldn't relate to me, that was, that was why. Because that, you know, they were uncomfortable with my gayness. And the fact that I also wasn't like a, a quiet, closeted gay kid, you know, I was pretty out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so interesting how often with NPE stories, we hear some other difference that we attributed our outsider feeling to, Um, whether it's, you know, I was the outspoken one, or I was the one who was gay, or whatever the, whatever the reason we, we're usually pointing at something else other than I'm not genetically linked to half of this family, right? It's fascinating, isn't it? And you can't help but wonder, you know, that whole argument about nature. Nurture, of course, is, is specious because it's really, those two things are not separate. They, they are so ingrained, you can't pull them apart. But what I wonder is I read once this theory about why often gay men are alienated from their fathers. And it's not, it's not necessarily that they, as gay people, um, young gay people, have done, you know, have done anything that makes their father not like them, but their father senses that. Even if their father doesn't know yet, their father senses that there's something that separates them. Mm. And I, I wonder if that's true, especially in family situations where at least one of the parents knew if there was a sense that this kid is not one of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they may not even be conscious of right. it, but they treat that kid slightly different. And of course, it's a lie. For any when any parent says, "Oh, I I treated you all the same," well, of course you did because you were a different parent at twenty than you were at twenty-seven. Right. I mean, how? Of course you and were. And your children and, are different people with different needs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I look at the three of us in my family, and that we grew up in the same environment, literally the same house for our our whole childhoods, and you know, our parents were married that whole time, but we couldn't be more different. You know, my brother and sister are much more like culturally. But again, having a sense of being an outsider at such a young age, I was probably drawn to things that helped me understand my outsider identity that they didn't have to do. Right. That's why I said when you asked me how I was doing with this news, that I felt liberated, that I felt let out of jail. And I felt let off the hook mm. because I realized I had been caring no matter how proud I had claimed to be and how story of my sexuality is so different from many other people I know who faced much more horrifying treatment from their parents and estrangement or 
people who chose estrangement just to ghost their family, to not deal with it. And I didn't have that. I mean, I didn't, you know, my parents were not going to uh, PFLAG meetings, but they also weren't casting me out of the family. Yeah, it sounds like they were doing maybe the best that they yeah. could at the time with That's what, what they had. Yes, people can't give you what they don't have. Yeah. And they didn't have, as far as I know, any gay friends. So when I, I guess, technically came out to my parents, um, would have been, you know, 1987. That's not a time when they had any images in, in pop culture to in any way understand. And also, you know, there were so few that they had no idea that there could be all kinds of different people, that there was nothing, no such thing as right. a gay, right. you know? Right. Um, <laughs> it's not a monolith by any means. Exactly. You know, that's the whole thing I'm so grateful now that we talk about is that, you know, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, you know, in the same way with all groups is that you, you know, you can't let one person be the, you know, the totem for everybody in that, who, who shares that, that experience. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, you know, I, I just sort of accepted that I was never really going to feel part of this family. And um, I'd made my peace to a large degree with that. I'd made my peace that it was never going to feel great, you know, and the whole idea of like, does this bring me joy? Oh my God, joy. Joy to me is like an ecstatic feeling. Mm -hmm. So I'm not aiming for joy. I'm not even aiming for happiness. I'm aiming for the absence of pain. Mm. And I think that's sort of how I came to my being comfortable with my alienation with my family is that uh, it does not, it didn't bring me pain anymore. I accepted that it was never going to bring me a great comforting feeling. So, you know, that was fine. I moved back here uh, after many, many years in New York uh, to work in theater here. And when I turned 40, and I was living with my parents when I first moved back because it was also, you know, like 2008 when the economy just, I mean, I could not have picked a better time to move, leave New York because uh, I, I shudder to think of how I would have been surviving back then. Yeah. Um, so I was living with my parents, uh, you know, it's an enormous house. I had the whole top floor to myself. And my mother did often say to me, you know, no offense to my brother and sister, I was the one that they would be willing to live with, you know, because uh, I guess because I left so early because I, I moved out when I was, you know, I moved to New York at 19. Mm. So I left. And then like literally uh, a, a year after I moved back, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and given three months. And honestly, by the time she was diagnosed, because it was brain cancer, she was gone. I mean, she, she was conscious and functioning for maybe another month or so, but she'd had a stroke from the cancer and it it did damage her language a lot mm -hmm. um and so she didn't she wasn't able to really talk to us she would she could do some writing but it wasn't really legible um and so she really was kind of gone from that moment wow which made her death actually a lot easier because we had this three month and it was really like they gave her three months and it was like to the day mm. and that was all okay you know that was i mean we we made our i think each of us dealt with that in a different way i used to you know accuse her of me being an accident. And and she said, no, I had you on purpose and I wanted one more. Because I was like, why do you bother? You know, you had a boy, you had a girl. Why didn't you just stop there? And she said, well, because I had one kid for my family and one kid for his family. And I wanted the one that was just for me. Oh, interesting. Which of course, in this new, you know, 
yeah. with the information we have now, that's a very telling story, right? It is. So, so what made you take a DNA test to begin with? Well, my sister ha- um, had been in contact with our cousins on my dad's side. And she, the cousin on her dad's side, had started doing all of this research on the family. But she was learning all this new stuff about it. And Mindy was getting really interested in it, my sister. And uh, she took her test. And it was interesting to hear her results of things that she found out. And, you know, but I never really had a lot of interest in it, honestly. I mean, I have a weird face that people would always like, where are you from? What is your background? Um, Because for my coloring, I have strangely shaped eyes. And um, it wasn't until I moved to New York, I met a lot of Ukrainian people that the ladies would say that I worked with would say, oh, you must be Ukrainian. I was like, well, I, I don't know that I have any Ukrainian. And no, no, you look just like my granddaughter. And then I would meet people from Ukraine and they all were like blonde and blue eyed. And then when I went to Europe for the first time, people just started, would speak to me in German or, you know, Swedish and they just assumed. Uh, and so I did sort of wonder about that. And there had been sort of a legend from my mother's side of the family, from my mother. She had sort of done some research that she thought that her father's family because they're the ones that we look so much like, had come from Russia and that they were Jews that had escaped Russia. Mm. Um, there's no real evidence of that. This is her theory. Okay. So I thought, well, maybe that's true. Maybe, you know, I mean, it, I look like them, you know, and I look like, um, and, you know, even even Jewish people in New York, Hasidic people would stop me and say, oh, are you Jewish? And I was like, no. And like, you know, well, you must. You know, it, was, it was very strange. So I started thinking, Okay, well, maybe that's why that explains the, you know, the otherness is that, you know, it's just a gene that got handed to me. So anyway, Mindy wanted to find out. And so at Christmas this last year, um, she bought for me and my niece and my nephew. Uh, neither my sister and I have children, but my, my brother had kids. And he's not part of our family anymore, but Mindy and I sort of, you know, have taken them on, you know, <laughs> as our, our default children, mm-hmm. frankly. And so uh, she bought them for the three of us. And my nephew and niece, her brother and sister, took theirs pretty quickly and compared their results, which they thought was so interesting that one of them was a little bit more Irish than the other. And, you know, it was just an interesting story, but nothing, nothing they discovered. And I just couldn't get around to doing it. I kept forgetting about it. And frankly, also, I take so many uh, medications that dry my mouth that I was dreading having to come up with enough saliva to fill that too. <laughs> And but finally, I was like, okay, finally, I'll do it. So I don't know, sometime in April, I did it around my birthday, I guess. Shipped it off, and I really didn't think much about it. But the thing that's interesting is that this like Ukrainian Jew thing has become sort of a backstory for me to sort of explain, ah, you know, I have these are the people I come from. Maybe that it's you know just you know, and I kind of really was drawn to the culture and. Um, I thought, well, you know, I have a really Russian personality. You know, yeah. just these ridiculous, again, that whole confirmation bias yeah, thing, yeah. you know. And I would t- look at pictures of Russian people specifically, um, well, actually not Russian, but, you know, now that Ukraine hopefully remains its own country. And I think, oh, yeah, you know what? I do look like them. Mm-hmm. So when I got the results back, finally, uh, my niece and nephew and my sister and my nephew's uh, wife, we all share a text chain. It was like like the week before Father's Day. And it was late, later in the evening, not 9.30 or so. And so I was sending them screenshots of my results saying, because the devastating news that I saw in it was that I was not at all Ukrainian or Russian. And although my sister 
And my nephew and niece had, I don't know, like two or 3% European Jewish background and none at all Mm. that I was not even really that German, that I was like 50% English and Scottish. And so I'm texting them. I'm like, how on earth did I end up being the whitest person in this family? It is unfair and unjust. (laughs) How can I just be English? That is wrong. I was willing to accept at least being German. That has some flavor. But the thought of just being plain old English. And the other thing about this is so ridiculous is growing up, you know, the bicentennial happened when I was nine. And so I was deeply in love with all things about the Revolutionary War. And I had a weird patriotism that some people are sometimes sort of surprised. I call myself a James Baldwin patriot, mm. a patriot in that, I, you know, I love this country so much, which is why I feel I have the, a duty to ensure that it holds up this, its standard. Yeah. And sometimes people mistake that for not being, you know, go USA. Of course I am, but I want it to be everything it can be. Right, right. Um, and so again, people are sometimes surprised by my love of revolutionary war history and all of that. My bedroom as a child was decorated in an all revolutionary, very frankly, hunky, sexy revolutionary <laughs> war uh, soldiers. Um, and anyway, so... Again, I was appalled. I, you just, you wanted something a little more interesting. Yes, yes. Yes. I felt like, you know what? I felt like genetically I deserved it. And so I'm really just joking this way with the family, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sending them the, the what it says. And my nephew's like, okay, but it says that Aunt Mindy is like 99% likely to be your grandchild or grandfather, uh, grandmother, um, or like a half sibling, and 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 then it said, "Look, do you see mine?" Because they sent me some sent me screenshots of theirs, and it said that you're my half uncle. And I was I, again, I was just joking at that point. I was like, "Half uncle? What even does that mean?" I don't, I wasn't getting it. I mean, the chain is, you know, like several bits of dialogue of them trying to get me to see what what's before me. I did not see it. I wasn't looking for it. And so finally, they were like, "Dude, Grandpa is not your dad." Wow. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I really did keep looking at it going, what? I mean, but again, it instantly made sense. I did not expect to find that news out, but it made total sense. It just made total sense. Now, there was a whole backstory that I couldn't put together, but the feeling made sense. And even in that evening, as I was going to sleep, I felt something, you know, I'm not a very spiritual person, but... Uh, I did feel a weight lift off me. Yeah. And the weight that I felt lift off me was my mother has still been present in my life. I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that, but she's still been here. And I talk about her a lot. And there are times when I miss her. I mean, she was a pain in the ass, but she was a genuine person, like a full 3D person um, that you could never stop talking about for the rest of your life. And she's so interesting. She's such a, a fascinating story. I've never missed my father, the man who raised me. I never think about him. Mm. I don't have any fond memories of him. And I felt guilty about that, especially living in essentially his house. And um, which he did not leave to me, by the way, I had to buy it from the estate. Mm. There's a whole lot of economic aspects to this of things that my parents did for other children in the family that they did not do for me that I kind of just always told myself, oh, well, they need it more. You know, I'm, you know, in New York. And all this stuff. But of course, again, this new lens does make me think, what was that about? Did someone know something? 
So did you have any matches that were not matched with your sister? Yes, I did. And that was the next day my sister came over. Because the other layer of this, my mother's best friend, who she's known since junior high, they became friends again living up in this small town. They randomly ran into each other. They'd lost contact after high school. They randomly ran into each other. They were, of course, then thrilled to find each other in these small towns. And they spent as much time as they could together. Our family sort of blended. We called them our aunt and our cousins. She had stair-step kids between my mothers. I'd always heard a story, versions of a story, of how my cousin Karen and I are the youngest. And we're months apart. So, you know, they had been friends, but they became really you know, like sisters and they called each other sister and her youngest, my aunt's youngest and I are, grew up very close to one another, more than cousins, really, even like, like brother and sister. So my aunt, and I just saw her, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I went to visit her and she told a story about how they came to have the two of us. And it was sort of linked up with my mother's story about deciding to have one for herself. But what she said was that, mind you, this would have been like early 66 Apparently, my mother wanted to stay on a birth control. It was a new birth control that her doctor was giving her. And it was coming to a point where she had to be off of it for three months. And she begged him to not do that because she said, I will immediately get pregnant. Because apparently she got pregnant very fast, but he had to take her off of it. And she was pissed about it. She wanted to have, she said, then, you know, I want to have my tubes tied. And he wouldn't let her because she was only 26 at the time. And in 66, they thought that was too young mm -hmm. to, you know, for a woman to make that. And also she would have had to have my dad's signature to get it done. Of course. Uh, and so she was pissed and she stopped at my aunt's house and who was also just coming from a situation where she was trying to divorce her husband who had been playing around on her the whole time and was being basically told by their church, you can't do that. And so she was also not really happy right then. Apparently they commiserated. And my aunt said to my mom, you know what let's do? We'll each have one more and then we'll be done. That'll be it. And so that's the story that they always told about how we became the ones that they were having just for us. Okay. You know, of course, now that story takes on a whole different light because it makes me think, yes, my mother would be the kind of person who'd be like, screw you. Uh, I can't get out of this marriage, but uh, you can't control my uterus. And so I can have a baby. I'm, I can, you know, go have a baby with anybody I want to. Oh. Um, whether that was true, whether that was a conscious decision on her part, obviously we'll never know that. Yeah. But she definitely is, the, is somebody who would be like, uh, ha ha ha, you, you have all the power but this is the power that I have. Right. It was very big deal, like in many ways. That's again, part of the lore. The next day, my sister comes over and says that she has called my cousin immediately because growing up, that had been rumored. Somehow, even growing up, we had all heard rumors that possibly, uh, eventually my aunt did get divorced, but we had heard that, you know, there were some rumors that a certain, a certain guy was really her father. Mm. But never, never confirmed. I don't think that she and her mother ever talked about it. So I don't really even know now how we knew that. But it was one of those things that you know in a family. Yeah. And I think that my cousin just didn't really ever pursue it because she didn't think that there was anything for her to, to get from it. My sister called my cousin immediately and was like, okay, this is what we just found out. My cousin was like, all right, I'll go take the test then. And, and also she called her mother and she said, look, guy just found out this news. So he's going to want to talk to you. 
apparently my aunt said, all right, well, tell him to call me and I'll tell him what I know, which was the first time that I was really like, oh, okay, then this is real. And somebody knows something. Yeah. But the next day, my sister, my sister came over and tell, tells me the story and I'm sharing with her the names that, I, that did come up. And I say one of them, she goes, oh my God, I know that name. There was somebody with that name who would come over and that, you know, she remembers, this was only six, so she didn't remember a lot about it. Yeah. And so that really did strike her a little, I think, that it had a now, we had a suspect, as we've been calling it in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and my family, again, you know, my niece and nephew, all of them have been very much of like, how you doing with this? And how are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I feel fine. I'm not, I mean, I'm embarrassed that I, I'm not undone by this. I'm actually put back together by this, frankly. So we went to see my my aunt and, you know, she's getting older and I think, you know, hard to keep her on the track. And it took a long time to get her to where she finally sort of made up an excuse to get her husband out of the room with my sister. Um, and she really, she really didn't want to talk about it. And she told me that my mother had once said to her, when I'm gone, don't tell anybody about our misadventures. That's how she put it. I think she, my, my aunt was facing figuring out how to talk about it in a way that she didn't also have to talk about things that she'd put behind her in her own life. The biggest worry that I had in talking to my aunt was, am I going to find out that this was not a consensual situation? Mm. It was the only thing that I really thought this will, this will be hard. And how will I find a way to honor my mother's story there? And that's the thing I was most worried about, frankly. But no, my aunt assured me because she asked me about the name. That, okay. that Mindy recognized. And she said, yes, that would be the guy. And I said, well, can you tell me a little bit? And she said, well, you know, it's a small town gossip and all these busybodies were always trying to cause scandal. And, and they were, you know, she said, so she said, there were these two guys who were just trying to protect them. They were always around. They were just trying to protect them, meaning my mother and my aunt. And I was like, well, what do you mean by protect you? you know, get us out of situations that, you know, might, we might find ourselves in where, you know, people gossip about us. Um, I was like, okay, but I didn't say this to her, but I was like, uh, clearly there was something behind that gossip. The only thing she really gave me was your mother and I were as close as sisters, but your mother still kept stuff from me. Mm. There were still things your mother didn't tell me. Now, whether that's true or not, I can't judge. It sounds like her. I can, I completely can buy her having a soulmate friend that there was still stuff she kept from her. So it, that's as much information as I can really get from my aunt. So you kind of, you, you get confirmation that, that yes, that name, that's somebody that we did associate with that probably would be it, but I don't know the circ- exact circumstances under which you were conceived. I've been viewing this all as an investigation in terms of how do you, what evidence can I really bring to the judge yeah. um, to make a case? And, and so there's a known associate. He was in the right place at the right time. Um, and then when I said, well, you know, my, it's pretty likely that my conception would have happened around 4th of July of 1966. And she had sort of a reaction to that. Um, but she didn't really go into it. She's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I can see that. And she kind of got distracted by talking about her own running around, but not actually admitting it. And she did sort of talk. She knew her daughter was having this test and she knew that she was she, and she said, well, and I know who it would be. And she said, well, they were best friends and they worked together. 
and they hung out together. Mm. So these two guys seemed like prime suspects. It wasn't really helpful, but I got the, the most important thing I got from her was acknowledgement that as far as she knew, it was a consensual, it would have been a consensual situation because my mom apparently did have some kind of relationship with him. Okay. But she didn't give any more than that. Mm-hmm. Then she had a phone call and it was going on and on. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to go. And, and she said, but we're good, right? We're good. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, if I have any other questions, I'll, I'll let you know. And she said, oh God, don't make me go through this again. Mm. And then she was like, oh, but I guess I'm going to have to if the test comes back with, you know, and cut to, you know, a couple, like last week sometime, my cousin got her results back and we were actually sort of kind of secretly hoping that it would be the same person. Yeah. Um, Cause we thought, no, that'd be fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and we were fine with it because we already felt like brother and sister anyway, but it would have just been a little bow on this bizarre story. Um, but her did turn out to be the guy that she had always been rumored to be his, her, her father. So she's also an NPE. Yeah. And uh, so she's at the really beginning of this. In fact, she and I are going to talk about that. We're going to chat later. It is fascinating, you know, these two women who are best friends. So it does sort of sound intentional, doesn't it? It's it so does. weird. I mean, yeah. it may just be constant, you know, just a coincidence. Um, but they both, you know, got pregnant with other men who knew who were best friends. Yeah. But here's the thing: my family now keeps then started researching this suspect mm-hmm. and trying to find connections and, and everything and pictures of him, and and they're all like, "But look at this picture. Those look like your hands." You know, then it turns out, so we, you know, apparently this person passed away uh, a handful of years ago, let's say, still living in that small town, but, you know, he was married that whole time Mm. and uh, he has kids that are right around me. I would have been in school with those kids. I can't help but thinking is part of that story that mom got the hell out of town before I grew old enough to look like all of his kids, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that would have been a whole other funny Right. Yeah. Um, but then when I told my best friend about all of this, I mean, she understood everything immediately. It was amazing. But what she said to me is, because we were trying to figure out, did mom, I mean, like, why didn't they tell me? Did dad know? Is the way he treated me because he knew? Or is it just that, you know, he really just didn't like me? <laughs> yeah. And, and which, which answer do you want? But she said this, and I never thought about this. And she said, but your mother couldn't have known. There was no paternity test that she could have taken. There was no, unless, you know, your father was away at war, um, you know, during your conception, which wasn't true. He was right there. They were living together and having, one assumes, a sexual relationship. So it's very possible that she had no idea. Right. Or it was a possibility, but but it wasn't. It was a possibility. Right. And, you know, my father worked a job in which he came in contact with probably at least half of the population of this tiny town. And an environment where people came and, you know, would shoot the shit. Hard to believe that if there were rumors that he didn't hear them. Right. But again, that's that's but circumstantial. That kind of, we don't know that. That kind of supports your theory, though. You were a baby and she's like, we're, we're leaving. We're out of here. Even the idea that she was, you know, drummed out of town, you know, kind of. Um, because my mother would not have been like, I'm going to stay here and put up with this. No, she would have been like, I'm out of here. Forget it. Um, cause she used to say, God made the world, man made the city, but the devil made the small town. Wow. Right. 
again, makes so much sense, right? And her about hatred this. for like the gossipy yes. women and Oh, and then when we, we would go up there every other weekend to this, my dad's family, mother hated it. I hated it too. It was a miserable experience for me because his father would call me sissy every time I, I mean, he was awful. And, you know, no grown up ever stopped him, mm-hmm. you know, because they were all such passive people. Um, and they were, I have a vivid memory of refusing to get out of the car for an entire day when we went to visit there. Mm. It was just so torturous for a child to go through that. Yeah. So, so you kind of had the, I don't want to say luxury, but you had the fortune of quickly identifying who your bio father is. In theory. Okay. In theory. We, here's what I keep saying to my family, because they're all ready for this to be, again, that confirmation bias where they think they see, you know, similarities. And even I, and I've seen pictures of, there aren't a lot but I've seen pictures of him from high school and I can go, well, I can see it, you know? And I've seen pictures of his kids online and I'm like, it would not be hard to believe that these are my siblings, though. If you see the ones I grew up with, you would be like, you're not related. But you are Um, genetically related to some of his genetic relatives, correct? Yes, that's what we know. I'm related. All I can see is I'm related to a a second cousin. There's a second cousin who is a close enough match to be my second cousin, but none of his immediate family comes up. Now that's of course a part of the problem with ancestry and all those other websites. It's the only people who've done the test. Right. So you you've narrowed it down. You have a prime suspect, as you say, but you don't have a hundred percent confirmed. Yes, because all that proves is that I am related to somebody who is related to that person. Okay. Have you connected with that relative? Yeah, that's the next step, right? Um I have not because I have not come to a decision. Why well, clearly, actually, I have come to a decision. I haven't decided to, to say that I decided this, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, the big thing I keep talking about with my family and with in therapy is I don't believe at this point there's anything that I can benefit from knowing one way or the other that would outweigh the potential for harm to, to that family. Mm. You know, he's gone. The son died a few years later and the mother's still alive. She's not an old lady. I mean, she's, you know, and I just feel like what's the point of coming in here now? I just, I don't know that I could really ever. And there's another part of me that thinks um, it's terrible, but I think the devil, you know, is sometimes better than the devil you don't. Mm. And, and I'd rather deal with the memories of growing up with this difficult father than find out this person I can't ever know might have been somebody who would have been even worse. You know, it's a small town. They never left that small town. So, you know, the likelihood of them being part of a, that's not fair. That's a prejudice I know that I share uh, um, about that provincial world, but you know, there's reasons for it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I don't know if I want to find that out. I don't want to find out. I'm afraid of what I might find out. Mm. But more than that, I don't know that I have the right you know what I mean? I don't know that mm. I have, I mean, from a, if it was somebody else, I would say, well, of course you have a right. It's your, it's your family and whatever, but I'm not at risk for anything. I'm not, there's no inheritance at stake. You know, um, it's not like I have to claim my birthright so the castle doesn't get foreclosed on, you know what right. I mean? And, and, and I'm old enough that I don't have children. So there aren't people that would, you know, that would value knowing this or, you know, get grandchildren that that family those 
those sisters would get to know as their nieces and nephews. You know, that's not really part of it. Now, of course, you know, if, because my sister and I talked about this, if somebody came to us and was like, uh, I think your dad, you know, uh, we would be like, oh my God, yes. And we would, you know, because that's how we are. We would, it would be like, oh, that's a surprise. But we would immediately embrace that person into the family because that's just how we are. You know, we're like the blob. We just, you know, take people into the family and they never get to leave. I mean that in a nice way, you know, that it's, yeah, it, that's just how yeah. we are. We, we welcome people, but I don't want to risk these people finding out something that would shake their memories of somebody and maybe it wouldn't we don't know that we don't know maybe yeah yeah do you feel like you want that confirmation that this is your biological father or are you at peace with no it's not because if i don't know it's not real that's not it at all it's that i don't need to know anything else because it's like not having a father at all and, and in fact, my therapist even said to me, well, you sort of raised yourself, didn't you? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess. Um, uh, so really, you know, who I am is really, you know, my fault completely. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what? I'm fine with that. But I think that's such an interesting perspective to just kind of weigh the risks versus the benefits and kind of land with you're, you're good with what you know at this point. Is there anything else that you want to know? I don't know. If I were younger, it might be different. You know, if I was younger, I think I would have a fantasy. And my therapist didn't even ask me this and something I hadn't thought about. Like, well, what was my fantasy growing up of what kind of father I would like to have had? And I knew immediately it was like, you know, TV fathers that I, you know, I do remember having that feeling of watching certain shows, family affair, things that are way before your time, but, you know, that oftentimes had single men raising children. Uh, courtship of Eddie's father and just I know I had a crush at a very young age on Bill Bixby and it was not a romantic crush it was like a dad crush Mm -hmm. I wanted him to be my dad yeah because you know I would see people with their parents friends and even other relatives and their parents were so demonstrative and so affectionate with them in a way I could never imagine my parents being and in a way that I thought wait a minute is that what being a, having a father is like and it really did kind of throw me for a loop of like there are people who love their father yeah yeah and that was surprising to me how has this revelation changed your view of your mother and father it not only lets me off the hook i don't have to feel like i was a disappointment i don't have to feel like i was that i owed them anything mm-hmm do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's how I grew up feeling. And that's why I got out of the house so young. And it's why I never took money from them. It's because I felt like I had broken the pact. That I, by being gay, and not just any old gay, but being, you know, a feminine gay person who wore makeup and you know, didn't hide it. I wasn't a closeted person, which, I, you know, I could have had the decency to at least do that. But I wasn't. But I left town so they didn't have to deal with it. I always felt like, well, you know, I don't deserve that sort of stuff because... I broke the rules. So if you don't like the rules of a club, then you don't get to be in that club. That's all there is to it. The club gets to make the rules. Now, none of this was ever spoken. This is what I intuited as a child. But I felt when I found this out, I was like, wait a minute. Okay, I didn't break the rules. Or even if I did, I owe you nothing. Because, yeah. you know, you ain't in charge of me. And, and then even thinking that he knew that, in a way, I kind of think it lets him off the hook too. Because if that's true, 
if he knew about it or even suspected, I mean, that's got to be hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think there are a lot of people out there who are that generous. I'm so grateful that I was raised not by my parents, but although they were funny, they were funny in a dark sort of way. My grandmother, though, was so funny, my mom's mom. Um, and, and the thing she taught me so much was life is real and it's happening. And so you might as well, she used to say, it is what it is, but you might as well find something funny in it. It's not going to make you not have had a stroke. It's not going to make you not have by worrying and kvetching and crying about it. So you might as well find the humor in it. Because, uh, and Carrie Fisher once said, my life has to be funny or else it would just be true. And I think that that's something that has guided me and made me able to joke about this. And if I'd found this out at a younger time, I think it would have made me think I could have a relationship with a father that I'd never had. And I don't know if that's possible. You know, when you fantasize about, you know, this loving figure that would have supported you, nobody has that really. Um, and even the people that loved, you know, their fathers, Kids and parents have difficult relationships, regardless. Yes, yeah. families are complicated. Um, yeah, exactly. And so for me, yeah, I feel like my father, I have let off the hook. It doesn't change any kind of affection for him, but it does make me think, okay, well, you know what? Again, people can't give you what they don't have. And if I was a constant reminder of like the worst part of his marriage, um, I think he did a really amazing job uh not being worse to me honestly you know there's a cinderella movie called ever ever after is that Mm -hmm. what it is with drew barrymore yeah and she says to her stepmother angelica houston was there ever a moment when you really loved me and angelica houston says how can you love a pebble in your shoe Mm -hmm. um and so i would say that that i think he did a great job if he did know not taking that out on me more yeah. So in many ways, I'm sort of like, okay, you're done. You can go on. And I don't feel bad about not missing you or feeling nostalgic for you. So I feel like that's just sort of done. With my mother, it's more complicated. With my mother, it's like, I didn't need one more thing to make you a full rich person. You were already complicated enough. Mm-hmm. And now I will never know what that story is. I will never know, was this actually like a real true love of her life? Was this just a fun affair? And there's no way to ever know that. And that's fine. It makes me actually more sympathetic to her because I think I did, after she died, feel like, why couldn't you have been more loving? Why couldn't you have been more supportive? But who knows, did I actually remind her of this period of her life that she felt bad about or um, that she felt guilty about? Or you know, or did she just not even think about it? Did she think it would never come out? I don't know. I just, I do wonder. Yeah, um, But I do have affection for her in a different way now in that I think, wow, that must have been tough to not know. And, and I think, well, why didn't she tell me? Why didn't she ever let me know? I think she didn't think it was worth the risk. I think, honestly, I think that she thought that it's very unlikely that it would ever come out. Right. And, um, and we've all talked about what if we had taken this test while she was alive. I think she would have lied. I actually think she would have said, well, that's just not true. I don't think she would. She was not. She left no diary. She left no letters. She left nothing. I know people that she had correspondence with. I don't know if she burned it all. I don't know what. I don't know. You know, nobody's come forth with any kind of, oh, I wanted to share this lovely letter from. I'm like probably the only person in the world who has a box of letters from her. 
so I don't know. I think it makes me more affectionate toward her in a way that I'm surprised to find out. Yeah. You know, because I think that she was not a happy person. And it makes me feel like, was this some moment of happiness for her? Mm. You know, was this a time that there was some pleasure that she could make her own and make a private thing and make, you know, in this, like this little oasis. And it may not have been perfect. And she may have felt guilty about, or she may not have, she may not have given a second thought right. to the consequences. I, I, it's There's so hard so to know. Much. Yeah. You, it's like, you'll never know. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I, don't, I do feel fonder of her oddly. I, I do just have to observe. It's interesting that you're so into like revolutionary war history, and then you you were conceived around July Fourth. I think that's really funny. Yeah, I didn't even put that together. That's the first time I've ever said. That's hilarious. <laughs> so funny. That is funny. <laughs> also, you know, I'm a costume designer, so I've studied costume history, and you know, I mean, it's just so <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> so, what's next for you then? You're you're at peace at for now without you know reaching out. What's next for your journey? I would I will say that I keep going back to I paid for the you know luck the deluxe membership, and I've still learned nothing extra. Um, I mean, it's really, and I don't know what I'm looking for. You know, I'm looking for. Um, when I keep going back to the app, that maybe one of those relatives would uh, join on and I would find some connection. And, and you know, I, I've heard stories of people contacting distant cousins, and that's the way they kind of do that in. I mean, it wouldn't probably take too much to basically, I'm probably one person removed. That's such a, again, it's such a small town mm -hmm. um, that I'm probably two phone calls away from being in contact with his family. I just don't, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't, I don't know that what they could gain, as I said earlier, from finding, I mean, maybe, maybe, who knows? There's a whole other novel here where his marriage was miserable and they loved their dad and they would love to find out that there was something that he loved in his life. Or, you know, maybe they've all known that they had this rift early in their marriage and, you know, they, they lived under the specter. It ruined their whole childhood because of the way it affected their parents. Yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, again, I got no, I, I got no dog in that race. I'm not, I, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't cause it. I didn't, I used to tell people years ago, I mean, I thought of this analogy of why I didn't really fit in. I said, well, look, uh, I don't blame them for it. I was a hippopotamus that was dropped off in a group of, giraffes i mean they did the best they could yeah. but they were never going to really turn me into a giraffe and they had no idea how to raise a hippopotamus yeah and and so i can't blame them for that that's not their fault they took me in and i'm grateful for that the way this has changed is i don't have to feel so grateful anymore what i mean by that is that i think i grew up with this sense that i was like this orphan who should be grateful that he is given you know the nook under the under the stairs and now i don't feel that way now i feel liberated so i don't know that there's anything i need to do about it because i feel kind of like i have to have the burden of paternity on me anymore mm -hmm. and that's good i mean i mean look it's still weird it still makes me I think i still have a lot of investigation of looking through like to me because of who i am i'm gonna take a little time going through every moment of my life and seeing it through this new lens. Yeah. Um, because it does change 
my sisters, she, she kept saying, well, nothing, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. And she's like, I'm sorry, I even got that test. And I, 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 I was like, but it does change everything. It doesn't change anything between us, but it changes everything for me. And having, I, I think what the next step for me is trying to help my family understand what that feels like. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I need confirmation. In fact, the, the fun of it might kind of disappear a little bit if I knew exactly who it was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now yeah. I can kind of just imagine it. And, you know, when we were first playing with this, I had all these celebrities that could have, you know, like, uh, you know, from 1966. Okay. Who, who is my mother's type? You know, this guy, Donald Sutherland. Yeah. He's a real prime suspect here. And I mean, again, it's just, I think it's an interesting story that becomes more interesting when it doesn't have finality to the story mm-hmm. for me at least yeah i'm i'm comfortable with not knowing it's how i feel about any kind of spiritual thing is i'm not going to deny anything um there are things that don't really uh, you know i'm not interested in and they don't affect me in any way in terms of spirituality but i'm sort of like well uh i can never know the answer to this and i'm cool with that so and that's kind of how i feel about this it's like i ain't never gonna know it's highly unlikely Everybody that could tell anything is gone. So just make your peace with not knowing. I really like that perspective. So what advice would you offer a parent who may be keeping a DNA surprise from their child? Golly, it's so particular, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there are great reasons that a parent might want to not share that. And that I think you would have to weigh what the benefit to your child is versus what the damage it might be for you. Because I do think that, yes, it's your, the child's life and their right to know these sort of things, but becoming a parent is never simple. And I'm not a parent myself, but I watch everyone in my family and all my friends deal with parenthood and some choose it and some it's haphazardly happens and and every baby seems like a bad idea at the time and then turns out to be an amazing you can't imagine your family without them Mm -hmm. and my grandmother used to say if people waited until it was a good time to have a baby no one would have babies so i don't know i think you have to decide what's this going to be like if if she finds out and i didn't tell her because i think that's the part it's not the truth that it ain't the crime it's the cover-up that's you know, right. it's a Watergate yeah. rule. And I think that's what you have to examine. Do I want to deal with the consequences of telling her this now? Or do I want 20 years from now to explain why I lied, mm. why I fabricated all of this? And I think that's an individual choice. You know, look, if you're like my mom and you think, you know, I can ride this through. Ain't nobody going to know about this. Um, then, you know, <laughs> go ahead. And you're, you're, all, you're scot-free. But now with but DNA I think you would tests. Also, yeah, yeah I mean, probably but, not. But that's, yeah. What, that's really what I would say is, look, you ain't going to be able to keep that secret anymore. It's going to come out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my family, my grandmother used to always say that sunshine is the best antiseptic. Get the story out now. You know, I would say get in front of the story, you know, be the one to tell your kid instead of your kid coming to you and saying, uh, is something going to share with me? You know? Yeah. So I guess I would say ultimately, yeah, you, you should tell your kid. Unless there are situations where revealing that truth is going to cause harm to you um, or to your child. You know, there are certainly people in situations where they could be really at risk. Yeah, you know, for that that's a good point. Through. It is very nuanced. It's like when you tell people, like, everybody should come out of the closet. Well, not everybody has that luxury. Yeah. You know, not everybody is safe. It's safe for everybody to do that. And it's so I guess it's, a you know, 
you got to look at your situation and see if it's safe to do that too. And what advice would you offer someone who just found out that they're an NPE? Well, I of course listen to your entire podcast because, and I even found your podcast because I always say whenever anything comes up uh, among my friends and family, somebody has done a YouTube about this. Somebody probably has a, I joke now. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, somebody's probably got a podcast about it. And so, you know, I just immediately started Googling, uh, new, you know, found out parent or I don't even know what I put in there. And your podcast came up and I was like, okay, we'll see. Um, this is clearly not a, a rare occurrence. And uh, there's a whole podcast about it. I would say, think about what helps you most in a crisis. When I am in a crisis, what helps me is have as much information as possible. I want to learn. It helps me to know that other people have gone through this. It helps me to, to know that what I'm feeling is not crazy. I know I did spend a, a childhood feeling that what I felt was not true or that there was some, in, that what I was feeling wasn't valid. Um, and of course it turns out <laughs> I was right all along. Yeah. And so I would say, find out what's best for you to handle. Some people uh, are going to have different coping mechanisms. And I think I would reach out to people that you know can be there to support you because if you have coping mechanisms that are harmful, this might trigger that. But I, I would say, listen to your podcast. I'm not mm -hmm. doing a plug. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But I would, and I have sent it, you know, I've sent it to my cousin because I think hearing other people's experiences will really enlighten you, not only about what you're feeling and how to deal with what you're feeling, but also about how other people around you are going to react to this. And also the resources to find all this out, you know, because very few of us, would know how to like, find a detective or what do they call them, DNA angels to get more information and all that stuff. I mean, I never thought about any of that. So that's what I would say is there's people out there who can help you figure out what you don't know. Mm. And I think that is the best thing. That's, I mean, look, you can say all the thing you want to about social media and all the negative stuff about it, but the, the blessing of it all is, I say blessing a lot for somebody who's not, you know, religious <laughs> or spiritual, but the good thing about it all is it allows people all over the world to connect in a way that would have been impossible 30 years ago and take advantage of that, that there's somebody out there who has gone through this and is, and wants to hear about your experience. Yeah. I highly recommend therapy. Um, it's great. Uh, if you can afford it and probably your insurance can, if you have insurance, again, if you, that's a luxury. I yeah. don't, I don't, it is a luxury. And I, but if you have it, use it and, and ask for that help. That's I, what I'd say. Ask for that help. That's great advice. Well, Guy, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. And I hope that things continue so positively for you. I think your outlook is so wonderful. I feel very, very fortunate. Again, I can only attribute that to humor and, um, and, you know, being so old, you know, there's a point at which, you know, every, <laughs> I would say you know, every decade, there's a, you know, a certain level of crap you don't care about anymore. And it just keeps getting better and better. Thanks again to Guy for sharing his story. If you have a DNA surprise that you'd like to share, please email dnasurprises at gmail.com. Until next time.